Okay, welcome back, Cal and our listeners. This is Methodical Millions, Episode 5. You may notice a difference in my voice. We've previously recorded with our cell phones. I've now got a mic, so I'm on a MV51 sure mic for the audio files out there. We'll see how it goes. So Cal, we talked about personal finance and the goal was to cover sustainability and how does someone handle the idea of investing if they don't have enough to begin with? Now, let's say someone's sustainable. I wanted to ask a question. What would someone do if they're sustainable? How do they start to decide where to spend their dollars from there? Well, it really comes down to personal preference. Again, there's no one right method, in my opinion, that you should do or should not do with your money. After all, it's your money. But what I believe that you should do is put it to work. Like you mentioned, investing is helping the future, helping the world in whichever way possible, right? If you inject money into the economy, the economy will grow. And from there, everyone can benefit from it. So I'm not one to recommend necessarily where to put your money. But I would believe that one should look into it, right? Again, it could be towards their interest in hobbies, right? Besides putting it into a savings account or a mutual fund or managing it personally, you can put it towards some equipment. Let's say you're into photography. You can buy some equipment and start exploring that. And during your free time, you can take photographs and try to develop that into something bigger if that's what you really like. If you want to put into real estate, you can do that. If you want to put into a business with a partner, you can do that or into yourself. Yeah. Well, that brings up a good question. So it sounds like you want to get things that are valuable. They could add value to your life. You can be a bit selfish. It doesn't always have to be altruistic. But what about the price of something? So how do you discern between something that's valuable and how expensive it is? With consumerism, there's a lot of attachment. People sometimes associate a higher price with better quality or better status or bragging rights for the majority of people. The way I look at it is when it comes time to spend your money on a product that you might need or that you feel that you want, the best way to look at it is, does it deliver what I need? And obviously, does it do what I need it to do, right? Yeah. So how I think of that sometimes, I'll take the flip side of the coin. For years, I've been buying and selling. I'll use cell phones as an example on Kijiji and trying to get the newest phone for maybe half price or something like that. You had mentioned that, buying the deal. And having a technology background, what I noticed was, you mentioned this in the previous episode too, things will depreciate. So what I always say about technology often is something you buy will be worth the most at this point in time. And maybe in six months, there's a big sale at Walmart or Best Buy, and it's not worth that much anymore. So as an exercise for our listeners, what I'd recommend is go through your belongings, things you don't really use, and try and put a value to it where you would maybe consider selling it. And I know given the situation, it's not something you can throw on Kijiji now, but I'm talking for hopefully as soon as we get a little bit back to normal and see what happens. So a way to start to generate cash, if you don't have a side hustle in mind, maybe you're fine, you're just not in that headspace of where you thought of a good idea, start to try and sell things. There's Kijiji, there's Let Go. And it's a really good lesson in the price and value of people willing to pay for something. So the famous line of what's a painting worth? And the line people say is, as much as someone is willing to pay for it, right? So it could be an old pair of shoes, it could be an old cell phone, an old printer, 
you can list it for $25 or $250, but if no one really wants that printer or there's other printers they can get new for $50, bucks, you quickly learn the market value of something. And to me, that's how I kind of go through my things. In a perfect world, I like to think I try to be minimalist where I only get the essentials. In practice, it's not really done perfectly, but what I'll do is if I know I don't need something, I list it. I try and recoup some money. It's a good way to get some income and it's kind of liberating because your things don't control you and you see that money coming in is always a good sign. So I like to think, is my time going to make me money, which could be selling some old things as simple as that. Or if I'm going to buy something like this mic for the podcast, the value there is going to be quite high. So it's measured as a function of utility. How often am I going to use it? And my utility scale, I always joke on one end is... Well, the most useful, in my opinion, is the smartphone, the quintessential $1,000 smartphone. Again, you can buy one for $200 or $1,500. The point is, in that range, you get something that can change your life. If you use it all the time, you can consume, you can create all sorts of cool stuff. And on the other side of the scale, I always joke about the 90s home gym, the one that someone spent a crazy amount of money, let's say $5,000. It goes under the bed in the basement, never to be used again. So... Price versus utility, I think, comes into play when I make decisions like that. Um, Very, very important for me. So how much use am I going to get out of it? And you know what? Sometimes I think people, me included, get into the mode of buying things and not really thinking. And you don't want to change yourself overnight, almost like a diet. It'll never work. But just start to pay attention. Where am I spending? Where's my money going? So as a part two to that exercise of tracking your spending, Maybe look at the physical stuff you're buying. Okay, did I spend money? If it was on a bunch of coffee, that will be a personal choice to maybe cut back on. But if you buy physical goods, you're a big shopper, maybe Amazon buyer, think about how much do you actually need that stuff? And maybe you didn't need to spend as much or there's a better alternative, all sorts of stuff like that that I would consider. So very good point there that you brought up. And I have a question about that. What do you say to those who perhaps always want to buy the latest and greatest cell phone? Is it a bad idea? What's your point of view? Um, Probably going back almost 10 years, I bought my first iPhone. It was a 3GS and I spent a lot of money. I bought it off contract with cash. I think it was like $900 or something. I couldn't really afford it, but I was like, I'm going to keep this phone for five years. So that was the plan. Now, here is the story. About three years in, the battery starts dying. It did that thing where the phone would shut off at about 20-30%. And the reason why I bring that up was I remember picking up a client from the airport and my phone stopped working. It would do that reset. I had no way of charging it to turn it back on. And what I realized was, look at me. I'm in this situation where I'm driving circles around the arrival section at the airport not really sure what this guy looks like. Someone eventually waved me down, thankfully. But that's my worst case scenario of, well, this is kind of critical to my job. I need to have a phone that works. And that made me reevaluate how important a phone is to my life. So you know what? I'm in sales for a living. I need a phone that works. That's the essential that I need. In that case, I started going in Kijiji. And that's when I started buying, trying to get phones for cheaper. That was my first change to Android. But That's what I realized is I got to have a phone that works. So I would kind of buy the deal and try and get one every year or two, mostly because I was an enthusiast. So that's very much a personal choice. It's not about the right answer for everyone. It's about what's right for you and standing behind that decision. So I wouldn't stress over making the perfect decision. 
It's sometimes about making the right decision at that moment in time and evaluate your answer if something changes. So what I would advise is make a decision and move on. And if something comes up where you realize, hey, that maybe wasn't the right decision for me or it was at the time and things changed, it's okay to change your mind. Yeah, exactly. You have to adapt to change. You have to accept that things are not set on stone and that you have to be able to understand and accept change as it comes. The markets will not always rally up. So if you're, let's say, long biased, you believe that the markets are always going to go higher in value or you're one who think that the economy will crash any minute because the system is corrupt or whatever the case might be. So you have to have an understanding of the way things work and that things can change and you be able to change your mentality, your mindset accordingly to the times that you're in, right? So I've had my moments where I go crazy and spend money and a psychological trick I do, I've done actually, which was really successful, If you go on a shopping spree, for me, it's like electronics or techie stuff. You'll spend hundreds of dollars on stuff you probably didn't need. You're just kind of in the moment. What I would do is I would actually, when it comes in, let's say through Amazon or let's say you went to a store, just go return it after a couple of days. And then what you find is that, well, those things were essential. You get through that whole, I really wanted to spend money kind of phase. And then you realize your bank accounts start going up in balance and I mean, it might be very specific to some people, but I found that even worked for me where I just, again, the goal is just to get money back in your account, right? So whether it's the side hustle, selling things online, or just even returning stuff, I find it puts you in the mental frame of mind of making money instead of spending it. It's a great point. I don't think it's too particular or too specific because you're right. Electronics perhaps could be the thing that we spend on the most, really, right? So if you think of your phones and just TVs and whatever latest equipment, video games, all of that, they come up to quite a lot in terms of money, right? And even though it's nice and convenient to have a lot of these things, they're not all necessary. So another way maybe some others can look at is if you really want to buy something, try to sleep over it. Spend a night, a day or two to see if you can actually live without it and you might get to come back to your senses not getting emotionally driven to buy the item. So that can help you decide or maybe look for alternatives. Maybe you can find the same item cheaper elsewhere. Maybe you can find a different item that does the same thing for less. Maybe you can find a substitute altogether. So there are many other options and trying to actually not get emotional with your purchases is a big factor, I think, in maybe helping you save a bit more. So I always think of numbers as a percentage. Here's why. Someone will have to fact check this, but a lot of lottery winners spend their money really quickly. So it's kind of a huge amount of money. They're not used to it. They don't associate how fast they're spending it. That's called burn rate in a business, right? How fast you're spending money without income. And what I would say is think of it as a percentage because then money won't scare you. Whether it's $50, 500 or 5,000 or even 50,000, When you think of it as a percentage, you can allocate it to where it needs to be, put it to work. You can use it for essentials. You can use it to grow. You can bank on it as cash for a rainy day. In personal finance, the mantra is six months of expenses. So in case you run into unemployment or any emergency, those kinds of things could be a car repair or unforeseen expenses. But the idea is, is you can deploy this cash at any point in the future. And that's where saving is a good idea. 
So I've got something called the 5% rule. And what that rule is, people in personal finance will say, I'd never buy an expensive car. Let's say a Ferrari is an example. So the math behind people who buy Ferraris, sometimes they're using a smaller percentage of income or even cash on hand than people who are leasing that Honda Accord or that BMW. So let's say you're like super wealthy, you made some great investments. Do you buy a Ferrari? And how I'd answer that is, it's my 5% rule. So you take 5% of your money. So let's say you've got $2 million in the bank, okay? 5% is $100,000. So you can go buy that Porsche, you can go buy that expensive BMW or Mercedes. And to most, it would be a foolish decision. But to you, you're only spending 5% of your money. So you're way on track. That's how you can consider it. If you're spending a small percentage of your total cash, but to you, it's something you enjoy, why not? So Cal, what do you think of that? What do you think of money as a percent? And how do you explain that when dealing with things in your life? Wonderfully put, John. I completely agree with you. So if you think of it, let's say you have 100% of your salary, right? And assuming, let's say 20% goes to your utilities, then 20% goes to just fixed expenses. And then you have 10% to just save. And then the remaining 50% use for your entertainment, maybe for a trip you plan on doing. But in terms of percentage out of the 100%, the wealthy is investing perhaps 60, 70, 80%, where the remaining 20, 30% would be towards perhaps their own well-being, some entertainment, and their expenses. You told me this before. I think one of your personal goals was have seven sources of income. Can you explain that to the listeners who haven't heard that before? Yeah, basically, if you have way more than one stream of income, most of us have one job or two jobs. So if you're making a certain amount of money from your job, what happens if you lose that job? Either you quit or you get fired or you get laid off. So you end up being in a tough situation. I mean, in the sense that you don't have another source of income. You still have your expenses. You still have a mortgage and a family to feed for most. So you're burning through the cash that you have saved all these years and not being able to earn any money because you're stuck. So if you have more than one stream of income, like at it like a portfolio, right? So when you have one stream of income that's making you money and another that's not, overall, if you have more than one, you end up actually being in a positive financial position as opposed to risking putting everything you have into that one job. Again, and that's what most of the community, they have that one job, they're doing well enough and that's it. They're not doing anything else. So by having more than one stream of income, one could be your job. The other, you're doing a side hustle. Third could be a small business that you're trying to start or putting to work. Four could be into property, right? You could own a house or apartment or a small shop that you're renting out. Fifth could be sell items through the internet. You can start a blog. There are many, many ways that you can do that. And you're diversifying your streams of income. And when the time comes that you get into a tough situation, losing that one stream will not compromise your life that you've been used to. Wow. Yeah. So uh, have you heard of that buy it for life movement where you'll spend a little bit more on something, but you'll keep it for 20, 30 years as opposed to, let's say, every six months replacing a pair of boots or something? I'm just using that as an example, but have you heard of that, Cal? 
Yeah. So basically, correct me if I'm wrong. Let's say I would buy a decent watch and then keep it for a lifetime as opposed to buying some very cheap, low quality watch that I'll have to replace every year or two. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Although you showed me your Casio, right? That's a sick watch. And that watch <laughs> I had, I think, for 10 years as a kid. And I had it from like age 7 to 15 or something like that. Yeah, it's a quality watch that costs next to nothing. It's not only a statement for me, it's a reminder that I don't need the latest and greatest to do what I needed to do. And actually, I have a more expensive watch that was gifted to me that is nowhere near as accurate as it is. And it's an analog watch, so it doesn't have the timer, or an alarm, or any of that, which uh, I use more than I thought I would. So yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same idea. But going back to what you're saying about buying something for a lifetime, a lot of people would say that, but wouldn't commit to. So I would buy you know, a fancy car, so I'm going to keep this car for 10 years. And that's the idea. But when it comes to actual practice, four or five years into it, you'd get bored and look for another car. And what you've just done is basically put yourself into more debt than you actually needed to be in just to get something that you wanted at that moment in time. That's a very good point. We see that a lot in the car business. So it's not really brand specific, but what people will do is spend 30000 plus maybe five, seven grand on interest. So you're almost spending $40,000 on a car. What's that car worth in five years? Seven, 12 grand. And if you took a really long-term loan, you could owe $25,000. So putting yourself in those types of impulsive decisions could have a huge impact on your cash flow. So if you do roll that into another car payment, you might be paying double. And that's this imaginary value because you don't own that car anymore. You traded it. So now you've had this loan for basically nothing. Like it's it's got no substance. It's called loan to value. So banks are actually quite picky on if they'll approve you for that reason. So what are they backing? Are they backing something that not only depreciates, if you add an imaginary trade-in that's not even worth what your loan was worth, you get into some kind of trouble, right? So it's a good point about impulsive decisions and your decisions actually do matter where you spend your dollars. So all those were good tips. Sleep on it, look for alternatives, look for comparables. I always joke about if the world blows up, which kind of feels like we're headed there, but get a $500 car. I always, I remember when I started in the car business, I said, you know what? I don't have $20,000. Why can't I buy a $500 car? And I guess by being in the business, maybe again, once a year, you might see a good trade-in that is traded in for no other reason than it's getting old, but that's called opportunity too. So can you spend 500 instead of 5,000 on a car? Similarly, can you spend 5,000 instead of 20? And that's again, going through those orders of magnitude, hundreds of dollars versus thousands versus tens of thousands. If the cost of maintenance are very similar, why wouldn't you get a car 4X cheaper, 10X cheaper? Because that's 10X money you're saving that you don't have to go to the markets for. So part of growing and building the future is not spending. So where to spend your money includes not spending, includes spending on alternatives. So really, really think about that as you make those decisions. And what does that buy you over time? We talked about getting your time back. You can buy nicer cars when you have more money. You can buy nicer things, more expensive things. And again, as a percentage of income, it's not more expensive because you're not stretching, you're not getting loans to get stuff, right? I mean, of course, there's that sustainability scale of I need to get to work. I totally understand that. You just want to be sensible in those bounds. You need a car, I get that. 
don't get the most expensive, the longest term, that kind of stuff gets dangerous. What do you think? That's exactly the case. And actually, like I mentioned, just up to a year ago, I had a car that I really liked and it was a bit higher priced. And I ended up selling it for that thought because I don't have to have that much money tied up into a car that depreciates. Even though I'm enjoying the car and I like the car and perhaps there's value there, I decided to sell the car. And even though I do miss it a bit, my lifestyle hasn't changed whatsoever. But my expenses have dropped. I bought a cheaper car that does the exact same thing, takes you from A to B. It costs a lot less on fuel, a lot less uh, to maintain, and it's actually a lot newer. So it's going to last me hopefully a longer time. So what I ended up with is a bit more capital not tied up to the depreciable asset. And I was able to put that extra money to work. And even though it might not show now, but in five, 10 years time, I can look back and if I can do the math, I bet you it'll be multiples of that amount that I was able to save. Again, money grows and if done right, can grow exponentially. Wow. Yeah, that's a good point. And you're in control of your own future, right? You can make those decisions and the more intrinsic they are, they're for you, not for anyone else. I think that's where the power comes from. So we're talking a lot about percentages and multiples. Can you explain to our listeners a bit about what compounding means? Why would you want your money to grow in the first place? And by maybe taking a cheaper alternative, how would your money grow by compounding? Yeah, so let's assume that person was able to save a few hundred dollars here and there every month. And you ended up coming up with $1,000. Again, $1,000 is not a life-changing amount. It's not a huge amount, but it's something, right? So you take that $1,000 and you put it to work in some sort of investment. So regardless of what that investment could be, obviously there's risk of losing the amount. But let's say you put into something fairly safe, like even into, I'm just going to use the stock market just because overall, since its inception, it's been basically going up. It's designed to go higher, even though it does have ups and downs through its time. So let's say you put into the stock market, on average, you'd be able to get anywhere between 7 to 10% return. So if you take 10% of that $1,000, and in one year, you'll have $1,100. The year after that, without adding any money, you'll get 10% over the 1100 So at first, it will look like a very slow and steady growth, but that compounded interest month by month and year by year compounds on itself. And obviously, if you put it towards a stock that even pays dividends, you'll be able to get dividends that will help grow your capital. And on top of that, the capital gains that from the stock and from the dividend money that you get. So that money will turn into five years time might turn to $7,000 or $8,000. I'm just throwing numbers out, just for example. And then 10 years from then, it actually will not double from the five-year mark, but it'll actually go even a lot higher, perhaps 15 to 20. And then in 20 years, it'll be perhaps in the six-digit region, right? So this is not based on any math or anything, but just to explain what exponential growth is, basically that the moment your money starts gaining momentum in its growth, it actually starts growing faster and faster and faster and more and more and more each day, each month, and each year. So even by you saving every month, let's say a steady $200, for example, and you put that towards your investments every single month, in the long term, let's say over one year, that's $2,400. And over 10 years, 
that $24,000 effectively saved, but your money will not be worth $24,000 in 10 years. It should be worth a lot more, right? So it won't be worth necessarily 30,000 or 35. On average, it should be worth significantly higher than that. And it's not just 10% of the 24 because you're getting 10% compounded on each of that $200 on an annual basis. So that's the power of exponential growth. And that's how a lot of the wealth is created. And uh, I believe Albert Einstein once said, the power of compounding, that's the eighth wonder of the world. I like that. For our listeners, there's actually a rule you can look up. It's called the rule of 72. And yeah. ca- have you heard of this rule before, Cal? Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I've got uh, Investopedia open. It's like Wikipedia for investing, I guess, right? It's the first <laughs> link that came up on Google. So how this works is you can do some quick napkin math on how long it'll take you to double your money. And if you're making 0% a year on your money, you won't double it. Keep that in mind. So you have to have some kind of return. It has to be a positive return. So what this chart says is, if you take the number 72 and divide it by your percent return, you'll get a number. And that number is very, very close to the actual amount of years it will take to double your money. So this table says, for example, 9% return a year will take eight years to double your money. 25% return will take three. And if you think about it, a 10% flat return 72 divided by 10 is 7.2. So there's kind of that math behind it. So even if you're investing at 3, 5%, you'll get returns of double in 14 to 24. And this is a good question. Cal, why are there actually different rates of return? And why would people choose a lower versus a higher or vice versa? Well, for the most part, people can't really pick the rate of return, right? In terms of return on investment, for the most part. Obviously, you can by putting it into a, let's say, a fixed deposit or a savings account where you know how much you'd be getting, but usually that's a very, very low interest rate. And the reason you get low returns on your money for something, let's say, like a fixed deposit or a savings account is because it's a guaranteed return. So it's a very, very safe investment you're not really going to lose your money. You're not putting your money at risk at all. So basically, it's just a rate that perhaps the banks is offering you to put the money with them. Now, without getting too detail, there's the argument of you actually losing money against inflation with a, your typical savings account. But basically, as you put your money towards riskier investments, usually the reward is going to be higher. So For low risk, you get a low reward. And for the higher the risk goes, the higher the reward usually. So let's say you go into a business with your partner, you can potentially make 5, 10, 15 times multiples, maybe even more on your money, but there might be high risk with that. Now, with the stock market, again, let's just assume that it's been averaging about 10% return a year. Again, that's on average. So there'll be years you'll be making 14, 15%, and there'll be years you will be making a lot less than that, 4 or 5%. So there's a cost there of if I put my money just for one year into the market, is it better or should I just put it into real estate or put it into a fixed deposit account? So the rate changes with the amount of risk exposure. 
So a higher rate of return is not necessarily the best idea because there is always risk associated with that. Yeah, those are all good points. If someone's saving hundreds of dollars a month and they want to build in their future, we talked about things that grow. We talked about side hustles. Investing specifically, what's the conventional wisdom, depending on your risk appetite, for investing those hundreds of dollars? Should you get a portfolio? Should you save for a down payment on a rental property? Is there any kind of wisdom or math behind that? And does that change if you start saving thousands a month? For example, somebody who has better cash flows or is in a better financial situation? I personally don't think there's a right or wrong answer for that. And that's the beauty of it. That's why it's so fascinating to me is because we all have so many options. And again, there's no right answer for it. So if you're a person who would be able to save a few hundred dollars each month or every few months, again, then perhaps you'd be a bit more cautious with your funds because your goal at the end of the day is to make it grow, right? So maybe some people might have a high risk appetite. They would say, you know what? It's a few hundred dollars. If I lose it, it's not the end of the world. I'm going to go and risk it and put it something maybe with more risk with the potential of it maybe going five to 10 times bigger, right? Others will be, no, I worked so hard for this. It took me months to save up this much. So what I'll do is I'll put it into something fairly safe. So again, some people do it through mutual funds or through certain stocks even. Even though stocks are risky, you can put towards very solid companies, a blue chip company uh, or a dividend aristocrat, meaning a company that's been paying dividends for the past 25 years or more. So those are fairly safe, but that means also they don't fluctuate as much. So it could be a good way to do that. And there are many other ways as well. You could have tens of thousands saved up in a month or a few months, and you'd still have the same risk appetite. And you can take the same argument. You might be able to think, oh, you know what? I put it in somewhere risky. If I lose it, no big deal. It'd take me another few months to come up with the same amount. Or you'd say, no, that's a big chunk of cash. And I wouldn't want to risk it. So let me be wise and put it somewhere safe. The larger your capital grows, it's not a bad idea to diversify. But this is a personal opinion here. I wouldn't suggest maybe diversifying when you have something very small. I think it's best to focus on one thing or a couple of things at most and let it grow before diversifying. But if you're a person who has lots of funds on hand, then it's not a bad idea. Very good. And If I had to summarize, I would say buy things that help you grow. So do they make you money, whether it's investments or helping you with your job? Do they appreciate? Could be gold. It could be assets. And try not to buy things that depreciate or things that have a low resale. So what is the market value of something? If you buy things that depreciate, there's no market for resale. You kind of spent $200 on something. You'll never get that money back. Over time, that's probably not a good decision if you're not getting use out of it. So think of it that way. And if you do buy things that depreciate, make it a small percentage of your cash, right? That's a way to think of money. So how do you make spending decisions once you're sustainable? Those are some good tips. That brings me to a good introduction. Cal and I want to start an open competition. So it's going to be called the $100 challenge. And what our goals are with this are to both take $100, let's say the first of every month, and we're going to go 
invest it in somewhere. We both decided that's a reasonable amount to kind of experiment with and see what we can do. So what we're going to do is publicize our actions and every day or whenever a trade's made, post it online. So stay tuned to our website for that. You're all welcome to follow along and join with us. And the goal is to see, can it turn into something or not? And like Cal said, it's going to be low amount of capital, but full of opportunity. So can you really invest with a small amount and what comes out of that? So I look forward to keeping you guys up to date with that. Cal, any comments on the challenge? Yeah, I'm very excited. It's a great idea. Now, obviously, neither of us know how will this end up, but that's the goal. It's like you said, it's an experiment and it's all for fun. But at the same time, it's just something to help everyone learn what you can do with $100. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in today. That was Methodical Millions, Episode 5. Please visit us at methodicalmillions.com and info at methodicalmillions.com for episode feedback. Talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone.